Dear Lord, we thank you for your grace. We thank you for your mercy to us. Uh, we thank you, Father, for the provisions we have. We thank you, Father, for the for the role we can play in supporting the kingdom, doing work that you would invite us to do, Father. What an honor that is. And we thank you, Father, for brothers and sisters in the body who support us through prayer and through fellowship and through teaching. We thank you, Father, for the chance to congregate with them and to share what we learn with each other. We, we take all these things for granted sometimes, Father. They're just around us on such a continual basis now that uh, we may forget that life without them is possible, and it is a, a great blessing to have uh, your care evidenced in these things. And we thank you, Father, for the, the provision of a church that cares about your word. And we thank you, Father, about uh, so many things in our own individual lives that can't be named here, Father. You, you should, uh, should know that in our hearts we're so thankful, but not always quick to enumerate those things before you. Father, we also thank you for your word. We thank you for the revelation of you, to know these things that could not have been known without your care and, and your attention to providing these things through men and in centuries past who wrote them down for our sake. We thank you, Father, for that plan and that we would be born in a time and in an age when we could have it all, unlike those who came before us, who longed to look upon things that we now have. And we thank you, Father, that we could be privileged to be born in these days. Uh, but with that, Father, comes a burden, and with that... That burden being the, the days we live in, the times we are in. They are troubled, and we know that, Father, because we know that the world is not destined to stay together. It must be replaced. And as we reach that end, Father, as the troubles and the trials increase, uh, let our joy match that, as we know that it means the end is near. And don't let us look upon these things with concern. Let us look upon them with anticipation. And uh, tonight, Father, we learn about uh, your enemies both on earth and in heaven. And we thank you, Father, that in the end, uh, you will defeat them all for our sake. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. So after our holiday break, we're all ready to get back to work, go back to our study here. We're specifically now returning to the third major section of Ezekiel. As I told you last time, this section runs all the way through chapter 32. And it's the section in which Israel learns how God is going to judge the nation's long-term enemies. And this section we're in now bridges the really the first and the second half of the book. And the first half of the book was when we studied Israel's offenses and all that God is doing to judge them for their offenses. And that would lead us, as I said, into the second half of the book, which is looking toward the amazing glory that awaits Israel in the kingdom. So you have the bad news and then the good news, as it were, for Israel. But between these two halves, you have this little intermediary section, intermediate section, in which the Lord is going to reassure Israel that he will deal fairly with all of Israel's enemies. Because after all, if the Lord was willing to go to such terrible lengths to hold his own people accountable, wouldn't it make sense that he would do at least the same for Israel's enemies? And so he tells Israel that the enemies of Israel also will be judged. Some of them are judged in Ezekiel's day or in the centuries that follow, but others won't be judged until they reach the kingdom period, which is something we've seen already. Now, in the time we've had already in this section, we've studied a number of the seven enemies that are listed in this uh, group. There are 11 enemies altogether historically, seven of which are covered in Ezekiel. And we've studied Ammon, Moab, Edom, and Philistia, and we started Tyre last time the fifth one. And it was in chapters 26 and 27, last time we met, when we saw God's judgment of this wealthy, independent city-state called Tyre on the Mediterranean coast, present-day Lebanon. And in that chapter, that series of chapters, uh, we noticed that the key sin, the key trigger for their judgment was pride, not a new thing, obviously. And that pride came out of their immense wealth, their immense influence on trading across the world. They began to think that they were self-made. They began to deceive themselves into thinking all their wealth and all their power was because they were inherently better than other people. And they overlooked the fact that they were really dependent on the rest of the world to make them rich. And that God had positioned them in just such a place that they could take advantage of the trade routes. And it was about God having made possible what they had. And they were too blind to see that, too proud to think that. And therefore, because of their arrogance and pride, we learned last time that the Lord had said he would judge that nation. He would send them under attack, not only because they were an enemy of Israel, but also because their offenses were such that God needed to hold them accountable for not 
glorifying him. And so he promised last time he would level the city, he would remove its prominence, the world's merchants would mourn its loss, and so on. And now we ended last week not quite done with chapter 27. That's where the Lord was asking Ezekiel to pronounce what I call a eulogy against the city, knowing that its destruction was nigh. And in that eulogy, the Lord begins to remind the city how conveniently they overlooked their obvious dependence. And he, he uses this metaphor, remember, of a tall sailing ship, a majestic sailing ship to represent the city. And that was because the city was classically dependent on sailing. They were the, the sailors, they were the merchants of the world. And so he draws on that familiar metaphor. And we've covered the first part of this eulogy where he just describes how all the elements on the ship represent all the luxury of their life uh, as a result of their trading power. And now that moves us to the second half of the chapter, verse 25. So we're in Ezekiel 27, 25. And at this point in the chapter, we move from prose to poetry. And this is where you see that ship, quote, ship, experiencing shipwreck. And the poem doesn't give us much new here, so we're going to move quickly through it. In other words, you're not learning a lot of new facts about what we said uh, is going to happen to the city. But what it does is it presents in a very succinct fashion what God has planned, and it plays on this picture that would have been uniquely appropriate for the city of a ship going down. All right, Being the king of the seas, the, the Tyrians could certainly appreciate that symbolism. So let's look at verse 25 there. It says, The ships of Tarshish were the carriers for your merchandise, and you were filled and were very glorious in the heart of the seas. Your rowers have brought you into great waters. The east wind has broken you in the heart of the seas. Your wealth, your wares, your merchandise, your sailors and your pilots, your repairers of seams in your dealers and merchandise, and all your men of war who are in you, with all your company that is in your midst, will fall into the heart of the seas on the day of your overthrow. At the sound of the cry of your pilots, the pasture lands will shake. All who handle the oar, the sailors, and all the pilots of the sea will come down from their ships. They will stand on the land." And they will make your voice, their voice heard over you and will cry bitterly and they will cast dust on their heads and they will wallow in ashes. Also, they will make themselves bald for you and gird themselves with sackcloth and they will weep for you in bitterness of soul with bitter mourning. Moreover, in their wailing, they will take up a lamentation for you and lament over you. Who is like Tyre, like her who is silent in the midst of the sea? When your wares went out from the seas, you satisfied many peoples. With the abundance of your wealth and your merchandise, you enriched the kings of earth. Now that you are broken by the seas and the depths of the water, your merchandise and all your company have fallen in the midst of you. All the inhabitants of the coastlands are appalled at you, and their kings are horribly afraid. They are troubled in countenance. The merchants among the peoples hiss at you. You have become terrified, and you will cease to be forever. All right, so we have that metaphor, the sailing of the ship and the open seas. Now, the great ship here, as you remember, remember, represents the fate of this city. And it starts by saying the ship has entered open waters. That's always the most dangerous part of any sea journey for any ship, to be out in the biggest area of the ocean where you can have the most danger and you're the furthest from shore. And it's at that moment that, a, in the metaphor, a gale blows in from the east and breaks up the ship. East, as you may know, in the Bible, is pictures or metaphorically represents sin or evil. And in this case, it's also the direction from which the Babylonians arrived as they conquered the city in that day that they did. So the ship being broken, its cargo and crew tossed into the sea is the picture of the city being conquered by Babylon, ultimately by later invaders as well, cumulatively the effect of God bringing the city down. In verses 26 and in verse 27, you see all the fine things being cataloged. These are all the same kind of things you saw earlier in the chapter from last time we studied uh, that the Lord said was in the city. All of it's in the deep. Now you remember we may have, I think we covered this at one point in the past, that the sea is a picture in the Old Testament of the abyss. That is, of the place of judgment in the center of the earth. And so in this scene, in this metaphor, you have a picture of what we learned about in the earlier chapters when the Lord said he would bring all those who were in the city down to Hades, down into hell. So in the metaphor, everything going in the sea is the picture of the death of everyone in the city. And secondly, as the Lord has promised, he says the destruction of the city would lead to the world of merchants, all crying out in despair as their livelihood is gone. He says in verse 28 that the pasture lands would shake with their cries, and seamen 
who depended on the trade are standing on the seashore and they're gawking at the destruction of this great ship, you know, metaphorically speaking, men weeping bitterly, tearing their hair out, and so on. That's what the world of commerce was doing in reality when Israel or when the Lord brought down Tyre. And as we studied a little bit last time, these laments are similar to what the Bible says will happen when the future Babylon is brought down during tribulation. That it too will become a center of commerce for the world in its day. And so when it's destroyed, the whole world is gasping that something so great can be destroyed. And of course, it all affects them personally because of their dependence on it. I think this will be the state of humanity when great nations like the United States or other world powers like China are brought low by God in a day that will come because the Bible promises that the world has to be reshaped in some pretty dramatic fashion in preparation for the rise of the Antichrist during tribulation. If you've studied some prophecy, particularly in Daniel, you know that Daniel says there has to be ten rulers and no more ruling the whole world before the Antichrist comes to power. And the Antichrist coming to power is the first event of tribulation, effectively, the first part of tribulation. So uh, we have to see a lot of things start to change in the world even before tribulation starts to bring us to that effect. And some of that must look a little bit like you see here, like in verse 32 where the world laments over Tyre, beginning with the question, who is like Tyre? You know, again, we don't know much about this place. Most people don't know much about this place. It's not high on the list of places you study when you're in school. Uh, History doesn't typically take us that far back. But Tyre's historic strength and their historic resistance to invasion over many centuries, never mind their power and their day and their wealth, it made them the envy of the world. Uh, When the world thought about power and they thought about resilience, it was Tyre, it was at the top of that list. And so it's a fall that is just stunning. Again, it would be like you woke up tomorrow and found out China had fallen to some invading power, you'd imagine, or, or that we had. It would just be beyond our comprehension. Where did that come from? And so in the lamentation, you see this mixture of amazement and horror. In verses 32 and, and 34, the lament recounts the fall of the ship, and it, and, and it says people were just telling the story over again. What you're hearing in that is that For the years and maybe even decades or centuries after this event, the world kept retelling of the fall of Tyre. It was like the fall of Rome, I guess, for what we might think of today. The news no one could stop talking about. I think this is a little interesting moment, a little example of how the Lord brings himself glory, even among the ungodly. And he does it in ways like this, where his works are so stunning, even his works of judgment, they're so awe-inspiring that it would cause the world to testify to God's greatness, even though they, for the most part, they don't even know who they're giving credit to. They just keep remarking on the, the incredible nature of the event itself. The Exodus probably had a similar effect on that, on that age and, and time after. We're still talking about it today because it's in the Bible, obviously. But it's, it's certainly had an impression on the psyche of humanity ever since. Uh, Sodom and Gomorrah would be another example. The flood story is another example. So here's another one. Finally, it says, the fall of this great city will cause kings of the world to become horribly afraid. The world has been rocked when Tyre goes down. You know, when your hope for the future doesn't come from a knowledge of and a trust in God's promises, then the only thing you have left as a foundation is the world. What the world itself says matters. And for the world, Tyre in its day was the sure bet. So, in other words, if you wanted to rest your confidence for the future on something that you felt would never be shaken, you bet on Tyre. You bet on them remaining strong. So it would be like today, if if, if the world's in turmoil, you buy U.S. bonds or something. You know, I mean, maybe that's not true anymore. I don't even know what you do. But certainly that's where it used to be. And in Tyre's case, you would throw your lot in with Tyre. You, you would base your business on it. You would organize your trade around it. You, you, you'd bet that if everything else went to hell in a handbasket, as they say, Tyre would still be working. And your security depended on that. And your security depended on their mercenary armies, which we said last time flow through that port. Their ships, access to the, the shipping lanes, all of that. Nothing in the world they thought was more dependable. So when that city fell, it literally rocked their world. Because at that point, kings, it says, were troubled. Uh, They were worried. They were horrified. Because if Tyre could be taken, well, who was safe? If Tyre wasn't dependable, what was? That's why the word of God says in Isaiah 28, 16, Therefore, thus says the Lord God, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a testing stone, a costly cornerstone for the foundation, firmly placed. He who believes in it will not be disturbed. So pick your cornerstone carefully. 
So the Lord pronounces judgment on the city. It comes to pass, historically, we, we said this last time, that shortly after Ezekiel reveals this to Israel, in the few years hence, the city is subjugated to Babylon, to Nebuchadnezzar. Now, Nebuchadnezzar does not breach the walls, but he is able, through a long siege, to eventually get the city to capitulate and become his vassal. Uh, later, as we learned, the Greeks come under uh, Alexander, and they actually penetrate the walls. The city's taken and ransacked. And he begun, after their ransacking, it goes through a period of decline, and eventually it's not, no longer a place of importance, just as the Lord said it would come to pass. So the Lord isn't done speaking here about Tyre uh, as we come to the end of this chapter. What he does next, and this is where it gets, I think, very interesting for most everybody, I'm sure, he moves to naming certain individuals specifically uh, that are connected to Tyre and judges them uh, in their connection to Tyre. And these two characters are the subject of this final chapter dedicated to Tyre. And once we get to chapter 29, we move on to another enemy. So this is the final chapter addressing Tyre. There is the prince of Tyre and the king of Tyre are the two individuals in this chapter. The first is the prince. Let's look at each in turn. We'll start with the first one, verse 1. The word of the Lord came again to me, saying, Son of man, say to the leader of Tyre, Thus says Lord God, because your heart is lifted up, and you have said, I am a God. I sit in the seat of gods in the heart of the seas. Yet you are a man and not God although you make your heart like the heart of God. Behold, you are wiser than Daniel. There is no secret that is a match for you. By your wisdom and understanding, you have acquired riches for yourself and have acquired gold and silver for your treasuries. By your great wisdom, by your trade, you've increased your riches. And your heart is lifted up because of your riches. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, because you have made your heart like the heart of God, therefore, behold... I will bring strangers upon you, the most ruthless of the nations, and they will draw their swords against the beauty of your wisdom and defile your splendor. They will bring you down to the pit, and you will die the death of those who are slain in the heart of the seas. Will you still say, I am a god, in the presence of your slayer, though you are a man and not God, in the hands of those who wound you? You will die the death of the uncircumcised by the hand of strangers, for I have spoken declares the Lord God. All right, so this section pronounces judgment against a man uh, who is very rich, it says. He's uh, rich, and as a result, he's very proud, and he declares himself to be a god, and so on. Uh, In my translation, it calls him a leader, but a better translation might be a prince. Uh, The idea here is of a man who is a ruler, but not literally, not specifically called a king. And This title, leader, in my case, prince, and maybe in yours, it obviously contrasts with what's coming later. If you notice down in verse 12, the second half of the lamentation begins with an address to the king. All right, so we see that obvious contrast there, one and then the other, each with a different title. King would be the one that's higher of the two. And yet we know historically there was only one ruler over the city at any given time. There was no significant secondary rulers in this city. They weren't... uh, they weren't a democracy. Uh, they, they weren't an, uh, an oligarchy. They were, a, they were a monarchy. And you were either king or you weren't. So knowing that historically, it, it's a challenge at first to understand, well, who are these two characters? One, is, one has to be the leader of the city, but who's the other guy then? And which one is which? Now, we don't want to jump to the second half just yet. We're going to get there. But when we get there, you're going to see that the description of the king in the second half is quite unusual. Things are said about him that really don't match any of the details of what we know about the city and about the king that would have ruled the city. And so as a result, when you get to the second half of this chapter and to the second character, you have to look in an an entirely different direction in order to understand who this king is. Now, having said that, looking back at the first guy, the things that are said about this prince, well, they do fit the historical records of rulers over Tyre. And therefore, we come real quickly to understanding that the first guy... Uh, is the true leader of the city. And the second guy, the king, doesn't actually refer to the leader of the city, the king of the city, but to some other leader who has a special relationship to Tyre. Meanwhile, the first guy, the prince, being the actual ruler, th- this would have been a man who in Ezekiel's day would have been Ithabal II. Historically, that's the name of the man who ruled in that day. Uh, in this text, he's being called a leader or a prince in order to distinguish him from the second character, who we'll learn more about. That second character is called a king because, in reality, he's the real power behind the throne. All right? 
That'll become clear as we get there. Let's, let's look at what he says about the prince. And you probably notice that the prince has a very similar uh, description to uh, what we've been hearing about the city in general as before, the idea of pride and wealth and, and all the rest. Specifically, we hear the king's heart has been lifted up by his wealth and by his power, and it gets to a point where he declares himself to be God. And this is very similar to what happens in other cultures of the time. The pharaohs were, were considered God at, at a point in their history. At a point in the Roman history, Caesars began to declare themselves to be sons of God, and then later uh, God's representative and so on. Um, now, he didn't just say to others, I'm a God, as if, you know, sort of putting one over on everybody. The, the sense of the text is he believes he's a God in his own heart. He's come to see himself. I mean, he, he isn't just fooling everybody else. He's actually self-deceived. Notice at the end of verse 2, it says he has a heart like the heart of God. Now, that's not meant to suggest that he has a godly heart. Don't, it's not like the, the way we hear about David having a heart after God. That's a different idea. This is a reference to the man's inflated sense of self-importance, of power. That is, his heart perceived itself to be like a heart of God in that respect. So the Lord points out, just a line earlier than that, the Lord says, you're just a man. And that statement should be obvious, right? I mean, if you think about it for a minute, how does anyone ever get to the point where they actually think they're God? And not just putting on airs, I mean... They think it. Well, because if you lack true spiritual knowledge and you have the heart that we're all born with, the evil, depraved heart that knows no limits, according to Scripture, then you can get to the point where you think you're God. And that's particularly true, and I think maybe only true, when, or generally only true, when the person has access to almost unlimited wealth and power. You take an, un, you know, you take an unsaved heart put them in a position in which there's no limits on that heart whatsoever, and it's not a long trip from there to the point where you actually believe your own press clippings. You know, you, you truly believe nothing can stop you from doing anything. I mean, money is not an object at that point, and if you have a lot of money, people pretty much do what you ask them to do, don't they? They'd love to ingratiate themselves to rich people. Next thing you know, it's just like the world is at your beck and call, and what's the difference between that and being God? For someone who doesn't know the truth about God, it's not a very big leap. Limitless authority leads people to thinking that nothing and no one is more powerful than them. That will continue. They'll continue in that mindset until the day they face God, and then the whole facade comes crashing down. Nevertheless, the king, or the prince of Tyre here, as he says, did have real abilities, real attributes that contributed to his prideful self-deception. You notice in verse 3, the Lord says the king was an intelligent person. Now, this is by God's grace, obviously. But the, the Lord says this man was smarter than Daniel. Now remember, Daniel and Ezekiel were contemporaries. They were both alive at the same time. In fact, they were both living in Babylon at the same time, both taken captive in their respective waves. And at the time that, that Ezekiel is actually writing this, he's in Babylon, and Daniel is too. And uh, they had been there at this point, Daniel particularly had been in Babylon by this point for 20 years. He'd already been there for 20 years. So by that point, he had ascended to his position of power underneath Nebuchadnezzar. He had interpreted the dreams. He had been placed in, the, in charge of the court of the Magi. Uh, and it's, it's likely that his story was pretty well known at that point. Everybody knew Daniel had done that. And uh, he had this reputation. And so he would have been admired as, a, as an intelligent man, or at least respected for the role that he played in the empire. And yet, here's the Lord acknowledging that the king of Tyre was actually a smarter man than Daniel was. And because of his intelligence, he used that intelligence to amass great wealth, it says. And then the combination of his intelligence and his wealth and his ability to manage his wealth and to trade and to do the things that people do when they have money, it has put him in a position of great power. And that's not a story that's hard to understand. We see it all the time, right? That's just, that's kind of normal life for at least the one percenters, right? And it gives us an opportunity to remember something that's a very important principle in Scripture, and it plays out over and over and over again. That is, the comparison between the king here and Daniel is a reminder that you cannot judge the quality of a person uh, or their importance as a means of understanding God's pleasure in them. You see the difference? In other words, someone's wealth and success is not a measure of God's pleasure in the person. Those are completely independent. Uh, The world has... Uh, in that day, if you had been in that day and you'd ask the question, who was greater, Daniel or that king of Tyre, 
the world, if they knew both people well, would have concluded, well, the king of Tyre is smarter, he's richer, he's more powerful. Daniel's in captivity. He's a good guy. He kind of rose to the top of his chain, but, you know, he capped out. King of Tyre, he's way up there. He's smarter, he's mightier, he's richer. But, friends, the Lord made him that way. Right? Nobody's, nobody's doing this on their own. And so the Lord granted that man the skills and the opportunity that propelled him into that position of success. And, of course, the Lord did the same thing for Daniel in his respective situation. He put Daniel in his place. He put the king of Tyre in his place. But when you compare the two, one is obviously in a better position in a worldly sense than the other. The point is the Lord gifts the unbelieving world at times with great skill, and he will allow them to use that skill for great achievement and wealth. And the world will celebrate their achievements, and the world will cheer about it, and evil and deceived people in the church will go the next step and say that that is how God rewards people that he's happy with. But wealth and power is heaven to unbelievers because it's the only thing they're ever going to have. It's, the, it's as good as it gets for them, right? When you see the unbelieving world blessed in these ways, be careful about making value judgments about their standing with God. And conversely, when believers are less successful in worldly terms, that does not mean God is less happy with us. In any sense. I mean, the, the classic example is Luke 16, where you have the rich man and Lazarus. Lazarus was in the worst possible situation until he died. He never had any opportunity to recover from that. As Abraham says, he got all his good things afterward. And when you consider how long one period lasts versus the other, I'd rather have it the way Lazarus got it than the other way around. So Daniel was less successful in some earthly sense than the king of Tyre, but he was far more blessed in the long run. All right, but back to the text. You see the final accounting there, uh, who actually was the better man, if you look at verse 7. I love the way he ends the story with this guy. He says to the king of Tyre, Strangers would come against this king, and a ruthless nation would draw its swords and would take away the king's wealth and power. But that ruthless nation we know was Babylon. That stranger, The strangers to Tyre were Babylon. They came in from the east, uh, like the east wind that knocked the ship down. And they destroyed the city. They, they essentially took away the, the city's wealth by making it a vassal and showed it to be vulnerable forevermore. But when that ruthless nation came against the less intelligent Daniel, what was his outcome? Well, it only resulted in him being exalted into a position of power. You see how interesting that is? That's how God commonly works. He'll turn the tables on the world to show that the world's wisdom is actually foolishness. So the one who in, in the world's eyes had the most power and authority was vanquished by this invading army. And the man who would have been seen as nothing was elevated by the same event. And then in verse 8, the Lord promises the leader of the city that he'd be brought to his appointed end to die as if someone who was slain in battle. In other words, this is, I think this is a, the, the critical issue, the last most important issue in this whole lament, is that when all is said and done, this man who had so much and thought himself God dies just like everybody else. In the end, the man who was so powerful and wealthy was indistinguishable in death from a pauper who dies in the gutter. Death is the great equalizer. It treats everyone the same. It leads everyone to the same place, at least in terms of a, of a moment of judgment. And nothing we gain in this world will make one bit of difference to that end. Nothing. Only the state of your relationship with the Lord will bring you any distinction in that moment. Ultimately, obviously, and most importantly, whether you know the Lord, but among believers, how you serve the Lord then becomes another layer of distinction on top of that. But nothing else matters. You know, you brought nothing into the world, as Paul says, you'll take nothing out of it. Everything in the meantime is just passing through your hands. And if it distracts you from serving the Lord, you're going to wish you'd never had it. Finally, he says, the Lord mocks the king by asking in verse 9, I love this, I love the way the Lord has a bit of sarcasm to his humor. That, that appeals to, to people who like sarcastic humor, right? He says, he asks in verse 9, will you be able to say when you're facing your slayer, staring in the eyes of the soldier holding the sword, about to cut your head off, will you say to him, I'm a god? <laughs> what a wonderful way to expose the folly of man, right? I mean, you may be able to fool a lot of ignorant people. You might be able to fool, you know, as the old saying goes, you can fool some of the people all the time, all the people some of the time, but you can't fool all the people all the time. Uh, you may be able to fool a lot of ignorant people into thinking you're God, and, and ancient kings did that. But at some point... And in this case, when an adversary comes against him ready to cut him down, 
He knows the truth. Not only will the soldier know the truth, but I think at that moment there's a little bit of clarity in the eyes of the individual himself. Right? You, you certainly realize my claims to being a God aren't going to save me right now. What kind of God am I? And as you read the Lord's retort to the king, as you think about this for a second, you might have been tempted to make a comparison to Christ because uh, in the text it says there, will a person who is about to face his slayer still say, I am a God? Well, you remember, of course, that Christ died on a cross. And if Christ is God, yet he too was struck down by his adversaries, you could almost argue that he is a contrary to what is, is being said here. Couldn't you say that? Couldn't you say that if he was truly God, how could he be struck down? Right? That, that's not our argument, but you could see someone drawing that out of the text. Well, there is a big difference. And the big difference is no one took Christ's life. He was struck, yes. He was pierced, yes. But he didn't die until he chose to die. The scriptures are clear on that. Nothing took his life. He lay it down for his sheep, he says in John. Which is to say, presumably, had Christ not given up his spirit when he did, he would not have died. That is the difference between a God who chooses to die for his creation versus a creature who cannot stop death despite claiming to be God. So uh, Christ did not have sin, and death is the result of sin. So Christ wasn't going to die. He had to give up his spirit in order to die, which he did willingly after suffering. So the king of Babylon dies the death of the uncircumcised, the Lord says in verse 10. That's not a reference to something Jewish. Tyrians practiced circumcision for other reasons, not obviously for the Jewish reason, but uh, as their own mark of distinction. And so the Lord is promising the king here, he's going to be dying shamefully at the hands of those who were not as privileged as he was, in that they didn't carry that mark. And so King Ithbaal II was deposed by Nebuchadnezzar when Nebuchadnezzar attacked And so this obviously was fulfilled in his life, but the lament applies to future kings as well, because as I said, the city began a one-way descent into oblivion as a result of what came from this. All right, that's the first half. That's the the leader or the prince. Now we reach the second half of the lament for the king of Tyre. And this is a mysterious figure. I know maybe most, if not all of us, have heard what this is regarding Although I think you'd find it interesting if you wanted to put some time in on this, you could go look at commentaries, even among some very well-respected and, and I think very uh, competent uh, uh, men who've written commentaries on this. It's still surprising to me how many of them do not see it the way I'm going to teach it right now. So either one of us is very wrong. I don't know who it is. But anyway, verse 11. Again, the word of the Lord came to me saying, Son of man, take up a lamentation over the king of Tyre and say to him, Thus says the Lord God. You had the seal of perfection, full of wisdom and perfect in beauty. You were in Eden, the garden of God. Every precious stone was your covering, the ruby, the topaz, and the diamond, the beryl, the onyx, and the jasper, the lapis lazuli, the turquoise, and the emerald. And the gold, the workmanship of your setting and sockets, was in you. On the day that you were created, they were prepared. You were the anointed cherub who covers, and I placed you there. You were on the holy mountain of God. You walked in the midst of the stones of fire. You were blameless in your ways from the day you were created until unrighteousness was found in you. By the abundance of your trade, you were internally filled with violence and you sinned. Therefore, I have cast you as profane from the mountain of God, and I have destroyed you, O covering cherub, from the midst of the stones of fire. Your heart was lifted up because of your beauty. You corrupted your wisdom by reason of your splendor. I cast you to the ground. I put you before kings that they may see you. By the multitude of your iniquities, in the unrighteousness of your trade, you profaned your sanctuaries. Therefore, I have brought fire from the midst of you. It has consumed you, and I have turned you to ashes on the earth in the eyes of all who see you. All who know you among the peoples are appalled at you. You have become terrified, and you will cease to be forever. Now, in a very general way, you can look at these two halves of the chapter and see a very similar structure. Um, the flow is very similar. They both end with somebody being terrified and somebody being appalled and somebody being destroyed. And it talks about pride and trade and wealth. And there is a very general pattern that's followed. But when you look at the details, of course, they're very different. And in this case, the character we hear called the King of Tyre, um, we, though we know the earlier character, the prince, was the, actually the man running the city, you have this guy now called King over Tyre. And as we said, that would indicate he has got a higher position of authority. But like I said, there's not multiple layers of leadership in this city. So there's only one king at a time. 
the earlier prince was the true king, so who is this greater second king? And the answer comes, of course, from examining what we hear about this individual and begin by noticing the similarities and the differences. First, like the earlier prince who ruled the city, you have this king who meets his end because of pride, because of his wisdom, because of his beauty. And like the first guy, he's thrown down and brought low by God despite his, his high view of self. But you know, other than that very general arc, everything after that is different. For example, you see major differences right up front. You have this king with wisdom and beauty, but there's some very interesting aspects to this guy's wisdom and beauty, starting with the fact that it exceeds that of the prince. In fact, it exceeds everybody. The king's wisdom and beauty are called perfect, it says, at the outset of this. In fact, it says he has the seal of perfection. And what that would mean is that the Lord has judged this king to be without flaw, at least at the start of this, that is literally sinless, perfect, with no defect whatsoever. And these statements are not hyperbola because the context would indicate that they're meant to be taken literally. This king had perfect wisdom, which would mean there was no created thing in the entire universe with more wisdom than this king. And likewise, no created thing was more beautiful than this king. And now at this point, you know, if you didn't know where this is going, you might be struggling a bit just to try to understand, well, I mean, how can you call anything in God's creation most beautiful? I mean, in, that, in the eye of the beholder, right? What do, what do we mean by that? And what kind of person could ever match this description anyway? Well, if you look back at the creation account, you actually get an important clue to help you know where this is going. In Genesis 3.1, you read this. Now the serpent was the most crafty of any beast of the field, which the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Indeed, as God said, you shall not eat from any tree of the garden. Now the familiar verse, I know, Look at what it says again. It says, The serpent of Genesis 3 was the most crafty. That word in Hebrew could be translated wise. It comes with a negative connotation, but it it just means wise. It's the most wise creature God created. Now, why would a snake be so wise? Well, because in this particular moment in Genesis 3, you have a snake, but that snake's being indwelled by Satan, and Satan is the most wise creature on earth. And as he indwells the serpent, of course, then the serpent is assigned that same quality for the moment as it's being indwelled. Revelation 20 tells us that. In Revelation 20, verse 1, it says, Then I saw an angel come down from heaven, holding the key of the abyss and the great chain in his hand, and he laid hold of the dragon, the serpent of old, referring to chapter 3, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. So it's Revelation 20, verse 2, that is the the text of Scripture that confirms for us that the serpent, quote, serpent of chapter 3 in Genesis, was, in effect, Satan acting most likely through the, the body of a snake. And as such then, we can say from Genesis 3.1 that Satan was the wisest, the craftiest thing God made, of anything God made. And therefore, when you hear the king of Tyre being called the wisest thing that God ever made, you begin to see the answer forming. And it gets confirmed as we move deeper down the text. The answer, of course, is that the king of Tyre is Satan. This is a lament, a reference to how God is going to judge our adversary. Uh, And as we go further, it continues to fit very well. So you have the prince of Tyre in the first half. He's the evil king of the city in human terms. You have the king of Tyre in the second half. He is the true spiritual power behind the scenes. He's the one directing the king. He's the one ruling the king's heart. He's the one bringing about all the bad things that happen. And friends, that is Satan's MO in every situation. Ephesians 6 verse 11 says, We put on the full armor of God so that we may be able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. And then with that is our context. The devil is now the context. Next verse. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, devil, against the powers, the devil, against the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces, the devil, of wickedness in the heavenly places. Those, the, all the little references in verse 12 are to, to the various aspects of, of Satan's dominion. The forces he has under control, the, the areas that he uh, operates, and so on. But it's all back to the devil. So Paul says our true adversary is the devil. In fact, the word Satan, you may know this, but the word Satan is the, the same word in Hebrew. So our name for the devil, Satan, is the Hebrew word just transliterated into English. And in, in Hebrew, that word means adversary. So Satan's name in Hebrew is adversary. So your spiritual struggles, my spiritual struggles, and, and that includes often our earthly struggles with people, are against him 
Paul says, not against the human agents that he's working through. And, and while he cannot indwell a believer, he can certainly move hearts, whether he's indwelled them or not, whether his demons have indwelled someone or not. So this isn't limited to the fights outside the church. This is often more uh, prevalent with the conflict inside the church. In all cases, you're not warring against someone. You're warring against a behind-the-scenes power. And the human agent is just a pawn. And most often, an ignorant pawn, oblivious to what's really happening. And should God choose to rescue that person out of Satan's hands, they would immediately become your brother and sister in the Lord, right? So fighting them as if they are the true adversary uh, puts you in a very awkward position on the day they get baptized. So... Why not avoid that whole stigma and just treat them as you should, which is a victim to something much greater? And so the king of Tyre, in this case, is the, is the power behind the scenes in the city. He is the true enemy of Israel and of God. And you know, broadening the conversation just for a moment, he is the power behind every evil thing we face on earth and the father of lies, as the Bible calls him. And in this passage, what you're reading is not only his, his downfall and his judgment uh, in eternal terms for Israel's sake, but for all humanity's sake. But what's really fascinating about this account is, I think, the backstory on what happened to him before he fell. You know, the fall is also very important, but how he got there and where he started is, is fascinating. And this is the only place in the Bible that it's recorded. The only place in the Bible where we know the backstory on Satan is Ezekiel 28. So, I mean, you hear a little bit, of, you learn about him in Job, you learn about him in, in Revelation and other places, but you don't really get the full story of how he came to be except here. And that story, the backstory on Satan, begins in verse 13. And we're told Satan was in Eden, the Garden of God. Now, at first, that sounds like something we know really well, right? Your mind goes back to chapter 3, except that this is prior to the existence of the Garden of Eden. This garden is called Eden, the garden of God. And that may seem like a minor difference, but it's your first clue that Scripture is referring to a different place here. Secondly, notice Satan's own appearance later in that verse. He is covered, it says, by every precious stone in God's creation. And altogether there are nine listed here. In other words, he is, for, for lack of a better way to describe it, he is wearing a garment made of sparkling sequins constructed out of precious jewels. And the setting for all of those jewels is gold, the sockets. So he must, when, he, when, you know, when Satan moved around, he must have sparkled like a disco ball. Now, you remember elsewhere in Scripture, Paul describes Satan as an angel of light. And now, in that case, he was referring to Satan's disguising himself as, as truth and enlightenment when he's actually the opposite. But we also now know that that description was literally true because he glitters. He shines. He reflects light from all his many jeweled appearance. I mean, uh, anyone who would see him would be dazzled by him in the way that God has constructed him because he was made to be the most beautiful thing in God's creation. And there is no indication from this text or elsewhere that in his fall, his appearance changed. So, I mean, Paul himself would confirm that he's still an angel of light or that he presents himself as such. And so truly, he was the most beautiful thing God created. And beyond this, he says he was the most wise, and he had the most privileged position in the heavenly throne room. It says in verse 14 that Satan's job was to be the anointed cherub who covers. Now, that language immediately takes you back to the law that God gave to Israel. You remember in Exodus 25, and it, it comes up in multiple places, but for example, in Exodus 25, when God's giving Israel the uh, instructions on the tabernacle and on what will be in the tabernacle, when he gets to the point of describing what would be in the Holy of Holies, he says in, in Exodus twenty five seventeen, You shall make a mercy seat of pure gold, two and a half cubits long and one and a half cubits wide, and you shall make two cherubim of gold, make them of hammered work at the two ends of the mercy seat. Make one cherub at one end and one cherub at the other end, and you shall make the cherubim of one piece with the mercy seat at its two ends. The cherubim shall have their wings spread upward, covering the mercy seat with their wings and facing one another. And the faces of the cherubim are to be turned toward the mercy seat. You shall put the mercy seat on top of the ark, and in the ark you shall put the testimony which I will give to you. There, meaning that mercy seat, there I will meet with you. And from above the mercy seat, from between the two cherubim which are upon the ark of the testimony, I will speak to you about all that I will give you in commandment for the sons of Israel. So, the ark, remember? 
Raiders of the Lost Ark, the box. The ark um, had a lid, which we call the mercy seat. And that lid was gold, and it had a single work, single piece of gold that was a seat and then hammered into two cherubim. Uh, there, cherubim, as we learned earlier in this book, if you've gone back and listened to the earlier chapters, you remember cherubim are angelic beings. Uh, they are the third and highest realm of the three levels of angelic being. And their role in the heavenly realm was to guard the glory of God. In the first part of this book, in the first couple of chapters, and then again later, you see them showing up with the big, I call them whirly birds. they got the big wheels with the eyes and the wheels in the wheels, and they're zipping around. But they're guarding and they're upholding the glory of God in all of those earlier moments. They're the actual cherubim. But the Lord told Moses that he's going to have this design for the tabernacle and for the mercy seat in which golden statues of cherubim would be positioned on either side, facing each other, heads down, wings up, and then the wings create a bit of space underneath them, a canopy, if you would. And it was in that space, that canopy, that was between the wings and the surface of the mercy seat, that God's glory, the Shekinah glory of God, would appear. And it would be in the Holy of Holies, and he says, that's where I would speak to you from. Now, go back to the text for a minute, and this starts to become just a profound moment. I just have always been so stunned by this every time I study it. Satan's job was the covering cherub. Now, obviously, the golden cherub on the mercy seat of the ark, the ones we just read about, they're not real. They're, they're gold. They're statues. But the book of Hebrews tells us that the design that God gave Moses for the tabernacle and for its furnishings was based on a pattern. Hebrews 8.4 says, Now, if he, Jesus, if he were on earth, he would not be a priest at all since there are those who offer the gifts according to the law. In other words, he was from the tribe of Judah. He wouldn't be a priest if he was on earth, right? Who serve, now listen to this, those who give gifts according to the law, and then, then Hebrews 8.5 says, who, referring to the Levitical priests, who serve a copy and shadow of heavenly things. Just as Moses was warned by God when he was about to erect the tabernacle, for God said, see that you make all these things according to the pattern which was shown you on the mountain. In other words, when Moses went up on the mountain, he heard things, but he also saw things. And what he was shown was something visual that could help him understand what he was receiving in words, so that when he went back down, he could explain to people, no, that's not what, I, that's not what it meant. I know what it meant. I saw it. He saw something from which the pattern of the tabernacle was then made for the people on earth. What did he see? Well, every element of the design of the tabernacle, it's, it, the tent and the dimensions of the tent and everything that was in the tent and how it was all constructed was a copy of something in heaven, the writer said, which tells us that in heaven stands the actual temple of God and that the earthly tabernacle given to Israel was patterned after that heavenly structure, which would then stand to reason if there are gold cherubim guarding God's glory on the mercy seat of the ark on earth, then that would tell us that the actual mercy seat in the actual heavenly tabernacle has actual cherubim guarding the actual glory of God. And the cherubim who had that job first was Satan. Satan's job in heaven was to guard the glory of God in the heavenly tabernacle. And then you get another clue concerning where all this is happening. Remember, we've already said this is the garden of God, not the garden of Eden. And then in verse 14, we're told that he's serving in this capacity on the holy mountain of God, walking in the midst of the stones of fire. Or clearly, that's not a description of the Garden of Eden. There's no stones of fire in the Garden of Eden. And neither is the Garden of Eden ever called the holy mountain of God. Those two details can only point to the throne room of God. Uh, the throne room of God is often called the mountain of God, or in other terms, Mount Zion. The Mount Zion that we think of on earth is, again, patterned after the Mount Zion in heaven. Good example of this is in Revelation 14. In Revelation 14, you see the 144,000 witnesses, uh, evangelists, who have died. It says in that chapter they have been purchased from the earth. They've been martyred. And they're all standing with Jesus on Mount Zion, it says. Well, Mount Zion is not in heaven except for the one of God in Mount Mount. In other words, if they've died and they're in heaven, how are they on Mount Zion? Well, they're in the heavenly Mount Zion. They're in the mountain of God. Again, the one we have on earth is patterned on the one in heaven. And the description of stones of fire, if you even go back and look just in this own book, never mind other places in Scripture, just go back and look at the earlier chapters of Ezekiel where we see Ezekiel getting visions of God and his throne. In both cases, in the two times that that's happened, 
One of the specific mentions is of stones of burning fire around the throne. So when you put all this together, along with that earlier reference to the Garden of God, you begin to see that, as I said, the tabernacle on earth is patterned on something in heaven. And Eden is also patterned on the Garden of God in heaven. And that as Satan was serving originally in his capacity as God created him, he was serving on a, uh, as the cherubim over the mercy seat. But before long, in that role, he disqualifies himself from that position. Verse 15, the Lord says that Satan began serving in the role perfectly without a flaw from the day he was created, because God made him perfect, until a day came, it says, when unrighteousness was found in him. The sentence construction there is important. It is very clear that the origin of sin was within Satan. Something within him. That is, nothing from an outside source. God did not present sin or, or provoke sin or institute sin. It was from within Satan that sin originated, which is why the Bible says that he's the father of lies. He gave birth to all that opposes truth. question for us is, what caused sin to manifest in Satan? Well, in verse 16, you see it, but it's in a chain of events. First, the abundance of Satan's trade, it says, filled him internally with violence, which then led to sin. Now, you have to read a little between the lines there to decode what I think is a, a bit of a cryptic description. So let's do that one step at a time. First, you say it says that Satan's trade was the problem. What is trade? Well, your trade is your, is your occupation. Your trade is what you do, what, you, what your life is about, I guess, in a sense, your vocation. So Satan's trade was what? Well, we've already covered that, but we could say it a little differently now. We could say his trade was, was protecting the glory of God in the heavenly tabernacle. But more than just as a general thing, I mean, cherubim do this all the time. They're protecting and upholding the glory of God. But this cherubim, he had a little extra you know, oomph on his job here. He was the closest created thing to the glory of God. You see this in general with the three levels of angelic beings, from angels to seraphim to cherubim. They get progressively closer to the glory of God and what you see described in the throne room. So angels on the outside, seraphim right up around the throne, and cherubim right there protecting the glory of God. But then you have Satan. Satan was numero uno honcho cherubim. He is the closest to the glory of God. Remember the attitude of the angels that are the, the cherubim on the mercy seat? Where's their face? They're looking straight into the glory of God. I mean, in a humble way, that's the intent is to sort of show humility, but it puts their face right there, you know, so to speak, on the glory of God. Uh, so when Satan, when, when the Bible talks about his trade or his occupation being abundant, the abundance of his trade, it's a way of saying the supreme privilege that had been given to Satan to be in that honored position of, of covering. Here's a good question for you that I can't perfectly answer, but you can, uh, this is a question maybe to puzzle over. Who was the other cherubim on the mercy seat? And who's there now? And if people are like, oh, it must be Archangel Michael. He's not a cherubim. So there is probably no one we know. The names are not given to us, but there must have been like a backup. (laughs) Call in. Somebody got called up from the miners. Okay, anyway. Uh, Second step. Because of the supreme privilege of his place, it says he was internally filled with violence. Here's a little more reading between the lines. Uh, Violence is an act of malice. All right, it's, not, it's an act of malice. That would mean that inside Satan came the desire to act in malice against God as a result of his exposure to the glory of God, which would seem like the opposite of what exposing yourself to the glory of God would do, right? And we don't know exactly what action he took or was intending to take. But we, what we do know, though, is what Satan has been trying to do ever since. So if you make an assumption, and I think it's a fair assumption... That, that Satan's doing the same thing now that he's always wanted to do. He's, you know, he's just rinsing and repeating the same things. Then what do we see him having done since Satan fell? Well, he's been trying to replace God's authority with his own authority at every turn. Just a few examples. He began by deceiving woman in the garden so that he could put man under his dominion. Throughout the history of Israel, he encourages Israel to worship him instead of God. Remember, he tried to get Jesus to do that very thing when he's in the wilderness. Worship me, right? And I'll give you all these kingdoms. The most telling, I, th- I think, most telling example is when Daniel tells us that after Satan indwells the Antichrist in a day to come, during the tribulation, that in that moment when he's indwelling the Antichrist and ruling the world, he will declare himself to be God, seating himself 
on the mercy seat uh, in the temple of that day. Daniel 11.36 says, Then the king will do as he pleases. He will exalt and magnify himself above every god and will speak monstrous things against the god of gods and will prosper until the indignation is finished. For that which is decreed will be done. So if Satan's goals have always been the same, and I'm sure they have, then I propose this, that his act of violence was attempting to assume God's place on the mercy seat. I mean, he's staring right there at the glory of God, and perhaps he thought to himself, you know, I could just sit right there. I could just take that role. Uh, furthermore, you remember what he's called? He's called the anointed cherub. Does anybody know what the word anointed in, in Hebrew is? It's Messiah. So Satan, in the way that the text is written here, the anointed cherub, it's like saying the Messiah cherub in Hebrew, which certainly must have suggested to him that he could be a replacement for Jesus. You know, he could at least work himself up to the second person of the Godhead, maybe. And so what was the act of violence? We don't know, and I'm not saying I do, but what I'm proposing to you is that it was an act of usurping the authority of God in the way that he could because he was right there. But God's not going to let him do that. I mean, obviously, that's not going to go very far. And so the act of violence being sin, it introduced rebellion into God's creation. That's where sin began. That's the sin that predates Adam's sin. It's the first sin of creation. And although Satan's sin was much greater than that of the prince of Tyre, the man we studied in the first half of the book, just take a moment to, to look at how similar they are, though. The prince of Tyre, we, heard, we read this earlier, the human leader, what was his judgment for? It was for pride. And what was his pride a result of? The abundance of his trade, his earthly trade. Having power and wealth, it went to his head. He began to think to himself, what? I can be God. <laughs> Now, that's interesting, isn't it? Pride is so powerful in the man's heart, it, thought, it led him to crazy thoughts that he could actually believe about himself. And then he acted according to those crazy thoughts. And then he offended the God who gave him so much privilege in the first place that it could produce those thoughts. And then as a result, the Lord cast him down. I just, what I just said right there, you could say that about either of the two people we just studied. It's exactly the same process. Because of what God gave to Satan, it gave him opportunity to be prideful. And when his pride made him think crazy thoughts, like, I could be God... And as a result, he took a step toward that, and God was offended and cast him down. Uh, it's, it, what it's showing you, though, is that the patterning process that we just studied doesn't just work one way. That it works both in the case of what God is doing in what he reveals through goodness, uh, through his own goodness, but it also works through this, the evil of what has happened in heaven. That is, Satan is the heavenly model for sin. And he blazed that trail for, for humanity as well. So it began with blessing from God for Satan, which then endowed him with certain things that he took for granted. And then as he began to take those things for granted, it generated pride. And then pride led him to act out against God. And every human being is doing exactly the same thing now because the genesis of our sin is him. And the patterns of heaven reflecting on earth has just continued. So there's general rules that develop out of this. Abundance leads to self-satisfaction. And self-satisfaction leads to prideful self-dependence, or the belief in self-dependence. And prideful self-dependence leads to malice toward God, which manifests in a lot of different ways, but in all cases is sin. So you can shortcut that whole process by stopping the abundance step first. Now, poor people can offend God too, so it's not exactly a solution in itself. But it does show you why Jesus said it's easier for a camel to go through an eye of a needle than a rich man to get into heaven. It, it wasn't a principle that said definitively rich men don't go to heaven. It was a principle that reflected the pattern of sin. So uh, Satan pioneered the pattern. We share in his nature, so we follow the pattern. So this, this patterning of, of heaven on to earth is continuing. So Satan's corruption of the heavenly tabernacle and our following in sin after him also have another common quality. They come together in a very interesting way. Both are reconciled by Jesus' blood. Not Satan, I'm not saying he is, obviously, but his corrupting of the heavenly tabernacle by his act of sin when he was in the place, that had to be cleansed. And the sin that came out of that that leads to us, well, we had to be cleansed, those who are covered by his blood. When Jesus was resurrected, right after he comes out of the tomb, the Bible says he travels to the throne room of God to make atonement for sin with his blood. That is, literally, the risen man God, Jesus, went to heaven in physical form with his blood and applied it to the mercy seat that is in the heavenly tabernacle from which the earthly one is patterned. And he did that in order to cleanse the temple. 
And you think, well, where am I making this up? Well, I'm not making this up. Hebrews 9 tells us this. Hebrews 9.22. And according to the law, one may almost say, all things are cleansed with blood. And without shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. And therefore, it was necessary, now listen to this, it was necessary for the copy of things in heaven to be cleansed with the blood of bulls and goats, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. For Christ did not enter a holy place made with hands, a mere copy of the true one, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God for us. Nor was it that he would offer himself often as the high priest entered the holy place year by year with blood that is not his own, but that he would offer it once for all. So he went into the room, and, and I find, this is a little theory on my part. It's not scripture. We're going off the off road here for a second. But I think one of the reasons why the, the disciples see him with holes still is because that allowed the blood to come out. I don't know how else he got it out of his body without, you know, if we're talking physically here, he's got to have blood come out somehow. That's just me. But in the way that things happen on earth, blood was let out into a basin, the basin was taken in, and it was sprinkled. So something like that happened in heaven from real blood showing up to cleanse. So now you see that, that the man's sin, that, that man's sin was following a pattern in heaven. That, that in other words, um, Satan was, oh, let me back, sorry. Um, oh, here's another detail. I forgot this one. Do you remember when Jesus had just resurrected and Mary finds him and he says, don't touch me? Okay. Listen to this again. John twenty sixteen. Jesus said to her, Mary, she turned and saw him, and in Hebrew said, Rabbani, which means teacher. Jesus said to her, Stop clinging to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father, but go to my brethren and say to them, I ascend to my Father and your Father and my God and your God. In other words, Jesus could not be unclean by the stain of sin now that he had been purified in his resurrected state, and his blood needed to remain pure so that it could, be serve, it could serve as the, the, the atonement in heaven that we needed for the throne room. So he ascends to do that. And it's not, he doesn't show himself again for seven days, according to the scriptures. So it's in that inter- intermediate period that he's, or it's, he shows him the next day and then he's gone for seven. So somewhere in there, he's gone up to heaven, done what he did, came back down, spent the 40 days, and then finally he's, he's gone. Um, the, and the Hebrews says he was applying blood to cleanse the tabernacle. The article that he was cleansing was the mercy seat, because that's where blood is sprinkled, right? It also happens to be the place where the sin took place. That's a little convenient, isn't it? That the place that we're supposed to be applying blood, which is called a mercy seat, is the place that the first sin took place. So I want you to go back in time when Satan was serving God on the mercy seat. I want you to imagine the scene for a second. God has created the most beautiful and wise creature in all creation, Lucifer, and he gives him a job. And his assignment is to guard the mercy seat and the glory of God that covers it. But at this point in history, as he starts his, you know, he comes with his lunchbox, and his, and, his, and his punch card, and he punches in for the day, and he sits there, and he's, he's covering the mercy seat. There's no sin. There's no sin anywhere, ever. What's a mercy seat for? What's mercy for? A mercy seat is the place where sin is cleansed by the application of blood. Leviticus 16.15 says, speaking about how the priests would do their job, he says, Then he shall slaughter the goat of the sin offering, which is for the people, and bring its blood inside the veil, and do with its blood as he did with the blood of the bull, and sprinkle it on the mercy seat in front of the mercy seat. And he shall make atonement for the holy place because of the impurities of the sons of Israel, because of their transgressions in regard to all their sins. Thus he shall do for the tent of meeting which abides with them in the midst of their impurities. All right, so... You're starting to find the irony, right? Here you have a mercy seat, which in its purpose only exists for the sake of covering sin. And it's made, it's been created, it exists. God creates a special being, puts him there and says, okay, your job is to guard that. And he's doing this, and all the time it has no purpose because there's not yet any sin. Not yet. I wonder if Satan was ever there just kind of doing this job, guarding the mercy seat, and he kind of looks up and says, by the way, what are we... Why do we have this? What are we guarding this thing for? What's a mercy seat for? To which God probably answers something like, just wait. Just wait a little longer. It'll all make sense. You know? Because not long after that, Satan's fall, because, I mean, just wrap your mind around this. Because he was on a mercy seat, he fell, which made need of the mercy seat. If God had never made a mercy seat, would he have ever fallen? Right? The paradoxical nature of the situation would suggest 
that God not only knew sin was coming, he made a way for it to come. Not by being an author of it, because we just heard sin came out of Satan's uh, own nature, but that in the way he orchestrates the creating of these things and puts Satan in this position, he puts Satan right on the spot where application of mercy needs to be made for sin, and then he triggers the whole of it by his role, which would tell you that the entire plan of redemption was, was put in place by God before he ever put the foundations of, of creation in place. And that's what, Hebrew, that's what we're told in the Bible. Which is really interesting when you consider that the Creator, according to Colossians 1, is Jesus. So the one who actually made everything was the same one who knew he'd have to die if he made it. But he knew before he made it, he would have to die. And he actually made it in such a way that it would, it would precipitate the fall, which would then result in him having to die for it. It's really, you know, you can really give Jesus a lot of credit when you say it's great that he died for us. How about backing that up a step? He created you knowing he was going to have to do it. I mean, that's in a whole other level of grace. Lord, thank you so much, Father, for revealing these deep things to us. There is no way we would know anything about our adversary except that you have freely and graciously given us what we have. And Father, we know he is none too pleased that we would learn the truth about him and his his history and his methods and his purposes and his future. And certainly, Father, he is still deceived enough to think he can change it and working hard against what you have proclaimed. Father, give us a heart of courage and obedience so that we would never in any way support him or further his goals or become his soldier uh, or in any way, Father, make his job easier. And we, take, we, we, we believe, Father, that what you've given us in your word is, is intended to, to strengthen our hearts against such things and to see, it as, to see the world and to see him as we should so that we would flee from him, as the Bible says, resisting him and seeking only for your, your good counsel and protection. And, Father, please, please protect our pride as you bless us and as so many of us have, have seen such abundance compared to so many in the world. Don't let it pull us down, Father. And if it is doing so in our own way, help us set it aside. We want to serve you and not the world, Father. Thank you for tonight. And in Jesus' name I pray these things. Amen.